This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm Brett Forster, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for January 4th. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading back to the Middle East where tensions are boiling over. Coming up, why this week could mark the point of no return for the region. Plus, Toronto police are investigating another anti-Semitic attack. We've got reaction from the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And a high-profile Conservative MP sponsors a petition calling for Canada to leave the United Nations. The power panel debates what the party should do about it. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is set for another round of high-stakes shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. America's top diplomat will visit eight countries and the West Bank in just seven days. This as fears mount of an all-out regional war. It is in no one's interest, not Israel's, not the region's, not the world's, for this conflict to spread beyond Gaza. Here's what's happening in the region today. ISIS is claiming responsibility for the twin bombings in Iran yesterday that killed dozens of people. In Iraq, officials are denouncing a U.S. strike on an Iranian-linked militia commander in the heart of Baghdad. In Lebanon, thousands attended the funeral of the deputy Hamas leader killed earlier this week in a suspected Israeli assassination. Hezbollah is vowing to respond. Instability continues in the Red Sea, with the Houthis apparently undeterred by the U.S.-led force tasked with stopping the Iranian-backed group's attacks on commercial vessels. And in Gaza, Israel continues its war. The Hamas-run health ministry says more than 22,000 Palestinians have been killed so far. Rhonda Sleem is a senior fellow and director of the Conflict Resolution and Track to Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Hello and welcome to Power in Politics. Good to be with you. Rhonda, you said today it's hard to see how an all-out war can be prevented in the Middle East. What makes you say that? Just there are too many uh, accelerating um, developments, you know, assassination in different countries, uh, uh, threats being exchanged. Um, so it looks like somehow too many developments in a short period of time that eventually is are leading us to some kind of a tipping point we don't know what will be the final trigger for this all-out war but i see an escalatory trend that's picking up in pace and 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 having a cumulative effect on a number of actors in the region Uh, that might lead eventually somebody, some actor, some party to make a mistake, which will then push the region into an all-out war. And what do you think that potential tipping point or red line could be? Or is it even possible to speculate, given how many variables there are at play? Exactly. It's very difficult to speculate. This is a multiple-front, multiple-side war and uh, actions by different actors are um, have impact uh, on in ways that are sometimes unpredictable and and so it's 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 very hard uh, to 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 predict that but what you see is that as i said there is this escalatory trend that is picking up in pace and people are trying to test each other's resolve, you know, in terms of standing up to each other's um, escalation. And, um, and, uh, and so 
again, we might end up going into a war, which at this moment, really, no, most of the actors, if not all the actors, regionally and internationally, do not want to go into. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned unpredictability and the various actors at play here. Uh, on the twin bombings in Iran, we learned today that ISIS is claiming responsibility for that. How might that influence the tensions in the region? That's a new entrant, again, into this complicated uh, conflict uh, uh, situation. Uh, at least a new entrant for this conflict. I mean, it's not a new entrant in, in a conflict, uh, in the conflicts in the region. It's in this particular conflict system that we are experiencing as a result of the war, uh, Israel's war uh, on Gaza, and of course, following uh, Hamas attack uh, on October 7. Uh, so that will complicate things because it's, ent it's, it's bringing into a sectarian dimension, bringing in a conflict between, uh, you know, ISIS and Iran that has always been there, that has been kept, you know, at bay at different points, although ISIS has, you know, uh, organized attacks in the past against the Islamic Republic. And, and, and that is going, again, to add another level of tension to an already complicated conflict situation. I want to turn now to Lebanon. Thousands of people there attended the funeral of uh, assassinated Deputy Hamas leader Salah el-Aruri. Hezbollah has vowed to respond against Israel, though Israel has not confirmed or, or denied that it is in fact responsible for this. Uh, from your vantage point, what is Hezbollah prepared to do? Yesterday, uh, Hezbollah Secretary General uh, gave a speech in which he said, uh, very much in line with the statement issued by Hezbollah following the assassination, that this is not going to go unanswered, that there will be a punishment to follow. At the same time, in the same speech, he said that um, their escalation on the Lebanon southern border has been incremented, proportional, again, seeking to avoid dragging the war or being baited into a larger war by Israel. I would, I would assume he's going to follow the same kind of criteria in designing this response to Al-Aruri assassination. But we also heard a statement from Hamas saying that the response to Al-Aruri assassination is going to come from Hamas itself and maybe inside Palestinian territories. So we don't know yet, mm -hmm. but we know that Nasrallah has said that they will answer, they will answer uh, to this assassination. And, and, and based, again, on, on that record so far, it looks like he said there will be a balanced response to avoid dragging the war into the escalation, while saying that if, where, if they were to be forced into a war, there will be no limits to what kind of response they will, they will have. Now, amidst all this, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is headed to the region on a diplomatic mission. His trip will include a visit to Israel, where the government insists its war against Hamas will continue for months. What do you make of the Blinken trip, and what are you expecting to see? I mean, again, the U.S. has been trying to de-escalate the situation and uh, prevent a regional expansion of the war that's taking place in Gaza. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so far they have been successful in doing that. But again, this recent recent spate of assassination, uh, recent escalation is going to make uh, his, his task a little bit uh, 
more complicated, uh, especially on the Lebanese-Israeli uh, front. Uh, I think the US, it's the only actor right now that's able to engage in that kind of preventive diplomacy. Uh, now, in Lebanon, it's going to be very hard to for um, uh, you know American diplomats to have listening ear at this moment uh, to their. Uh, uh, to their uh, uh, proposals for uh, de-escalation, partly because of the assassination of Al Arwuri, but in in but going forward after a certain time, I think there will be interest uh, in Lebanon, interest in also in Hezbollah on avoiding again the kind of escalation that drags the country into a major war. Now, whether Israel wants to avoid that larger war, that larger escalation, I don't know. You know, um, so, but today, Prime Minister Netanyahu said uh, in his meeting with the visiting American official that the situation between Lebanon, and, between Hezbollah and Israel, especially in terms of the presence of Hezbollah uh, in the border region south of the Litani River, has to be resolved uh, either by force or by diplomacy. I hope that American diplomacy will win the day and that force will be prevented and avoided. Rhonda, on that note, I wanted to ask you about one more topic. The U.S. and 12 of its allies, including Canada, issued a warning again yesterday to the Houthis to stop the attacks in the Red Sea. The U.N. Security Council issued a statement on that today. How do you see that particular flashpoint playing out? You know, one thing that we have been underestimating since the beginning of this war is the Houthis' desire uh, to show their credential uh, to Iran, to Hezbollah, to the other members of the axis of resistance, their credential as a member of this resistance network. So on one hand, the Houthis are very much influenced by Hezbollah more than by Iran. And, um, you know, look at Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, with lots of respect and reverence. But And, and, and they are likely to listen to... Uh, you know, uh, guidance or to, not orders, but guidance from Hezbollah to uh, tone down their actions or to refrain from certain kind of action that might cause a large escalation. But on the other hand, also Houthis dance to their own tune, you know, and, and, and uh, somehow we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are limits to how much they can be controlled by Iran, by Hezbollah, and their desire of establishing themselves as a, as a strong, uh, reliable member of the axis of resistance. Mm. Well, on a related note, Rhonda, you speak about who listens to who and how much pull uh, some of these actors have with each other. The U.S. continues to support Israel, even as it tries to prevent this war from expanding and cool tensions in the region. How might that complicate Blinken's diplomatic efforts? The U.S. has lost a lot of credibility uh, in, in a good part of the region, uh, not necessarily in, in the Gulf, in the Arab Gulf, because I think those countries uh, have, have so far, you know, tried to, uh, claim, have tried to make the case for avoiding the war, avoiding the expansion of the war. But at the same time, they, there is no love lost between uh, them and, uh, and Hamas. There is no love lost between them and Hezbollah. There is no love lost between them and the Houthis. And so in, in one way, 
if the war uh, were to weaken these elements and the role they can they play in the region, be it Hezbollah, be it Hamas, be it Houthis, be it their patron or their uh, their their stronger ally, Iran, I don't think they are going to stand in that in in in, in the way of this war. At least they have shown until now that. Um, they are not going to be standing in the way, despite uh, the calls for uh, for ending the war. However, uh, you know, I, I think the I think it's going to be uh, hard for the U.S. at this point to deter uh, these other the actions by these elements of the resistance network, be it Iraqi militias, be it uh, Hezbollah be it uh, the Houthis, partly because they are now members of a network that is funded, trained, supported by Iran. And a strategic objective of this network is to prevent the elimination of any member of this network. And as long as Israel's stated Mm. objective is uh, elimination of Hamas, you are going to see these other actors going into and escalating in whatever way they can in order to up the pressure on America, on the United States and on Israel to stop the war in Gaza. And as long as the United States is not calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, I think there's going to be limit to how much they can achieve uh, through diplomacy with, uh, with, with the region. All right, we have to leave it there. Rhonda Sleem is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you. Toronto police say its hate crime unit is investigating a fire at a Jewish-owned grocery store that was also spray-painted with the words, Free Palestine. Make no mistake, it was a criminal act that was organized and has inflicted great harm in our communities. And in my view, was hate-motivated. The attack happened at the International Delicatessen Foods on Wednesday morning. Police say the fire is being investigated as a suspected hate-motivated arson while the graffiti is being probed as a possible hate crime. Jamie Kirsner-Roberts is the Vice President GTA for the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. She joins me now to discuss concerns over the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in the city. Hello, Jamie, and welcome to Power and Politics. Hi, thanks for having me. So I understand you met with Toronto Police Chief Myron Demkew just before joining us today. What can you tell me about how that conversation went? Look, we're really grateful uh, for Chief Demkew for the Toronto Police. They have made it clear um, that they are taking um, this incident incredibly seriously um, and that they are committed to... Uh, protecting the safety of um, Jewish community members and for all Torontonians um, in light of uh, of this um, heinous incident. Well, let's talk about the numbers a little bit. Toronto police have reported growing numbers of anti-Semitic incidents since the Israel-Hamas war began. The latest statistics show that these incidents make up 53% of reported hate crimes in Toronto. What do you want to see from policymakers or law enforcement in response? Look, we've seen a lot, uh, many political leaders um, coming out um, and, and 
and, and saying the right things, speaking about how anti-Semitism is, is unacceptable. And we're, we're grateful for that. Um, but, you know, at this moment, uh, we no longer feel that words are enough. For our political leaders, this is a time to act. Um, and we are looking to see changes um, being made, the changes that are necessary to be made to go after these hate groups that are, um, you know, encouraging their members to commit acts uh, of, of violence against the Jewish community. And when you say you're looking for changes in action, what specifically do you want to see? You know, it may be that our that there needs to be new laws ar- around hate. You know, the laws that we have around hate were were created for um, in during the non digital age, um, and you know, they're really quite limited in terms of h- how they can assess law enforcement and going after hate groups that are operating and recruiting and spreading their venom um, on on social media. Um, so, so, so that's one thing, and I, and I think at, at the same time, um, social media companies need to be held accountable uh, for their role in effectively publishing hate speech. I mean, we are seeing the groups um, that, that that hate groups are, you know, they're recruiting, they are um, spreading hateful and sometimes violent messages against the Jewish community online. And then we are seeing th- those messages um, sort of being lived, being lived out, and, resu- and, and resulting in actual uh, incidents um, on the streets. And I and I do think that social media companies need to be held accountable for their role in that. And Jamie, on a local level, what are you hearing from the Jewish community about how this climate is impacting them? The Jewish community. Is afraid. I mean, the fact that um, a random Jewish business was targeted for such a heinous crime—you um, know—this th- this makes each of us wonder who, who's next. Um, and but unfortunately, we're uh, none of us are surprised. We're not surprised because um, you know this is an escalation, but it's one more step in a long in a long process that we've been seen unfolding since October seventh. We've now seen community centers, Jewish community centers that service the elderly and service, you know, uh, children being targeted for boycotts, for targeted for vandalism. We've seen other Jewish businesses targeted for for boycotts. And, you know, just like uh, the incident that happened um, the night before last, um, you know, these are all these were all businesses and organizations that had no connection whatsoever to any international events unfolding. These were random Jewish institutions and organizations that were targeted. Um, so now that you know, we've seen now a more violent incident, an incident involving an, uh, a suspected arson. I mean, this is sort of just the next step in the progression, and that's why this is a moment, opportunity, if you will. Um, 
for, for, for us as a society, I think, to reflect on how serious the problem anti-Semitism has become. Well, Jamie, I um, want to jump in there because you mentioned uh, the need for policymakers and even tech giants to take some action. Some Jewish organizations are appealing to Torontonians, regular people, to take a stand against this. Uh, what would that look like to you? We are asking regular people, uh, regular citizens, to take a stand because, you know, a lot of the hate that's percolating towards the Jewish community, you know, it's we're not talking about hate groups in some, you know, dark corners of society. I mean, many of these hate groups are, you know, their their members come from prominent positions in 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 society, teachers sometimes or educators. Um, you know, they're they're operating. Um, very much in the open with with lots of members of society that um, you know that w- many of us might interact with in our day to day life. Um, that's why it's so important at this moment for you know average uh, Torontonians and average Canadians of good conscience to to stand to stand up. Okay, this is uh, they need to st- stand up and speak out to the hate that's happening in their world and in their community. There is anti-Semitism that is being um, spread here in, in, in all of our little worlds. That is the reality of the moment that we are in right now. And we are asking people to call that out. We're, the Jewish community is a tiny percent of the population. We cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. And anti-Semitism is not coming from our community. It's coming from outside of it. So we are asking other people outside of our community to stand with us um, and to stand up and speak out. All right, Jamie, we are unfortunately out of time for this segment. Jamie Kersner-Roberts is the Vice President GTA for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. We turn to Washington, where today House Democrats released documents saying that during Donald Trump's presidency, his businesses received almost $8 million from foreign entities. The report alleges that at least 20 foreign governments sent payments to Trump's businesses while he was president. For more, Aaron Blake, a senior political reporter writing for The Fix at The Washington Post, joins me now. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start with these documents, this report, what's in them, what do you see as the key takeaways? Well, I think it's not terribly surprising that uh, foreign money flowed to Trump's businesses uh, during his presidency. This was a a possibility that we all knew uh, was was likely to happen given the, the breadth of Trump's businesses. Um, and in early in his presidency, this was a big narrative. I think what the reason that this is being talked about now and put in a report like this is that the idea that a president has benefited from foreign uh, countries is basically the narrative that Republicans have been pushing when it comes to potentially impeaching President Biden. The idea is that money went to his son and his family members and that it somehow might have found its way to President Biden himself, there's no proof of that so far. But what Republic, what Democrats rather are basically saying is, look, we have evidence that we know foreign money went to the previous president. How come you guys are not focusing on this? And by the way, 
The dollar figures are significant. They're, they're more money than Hunter Biden looks to have made with his overseas work, not including money that would have been, you know, gone to President Biden. And so basically this is an attempt to emphasize there's some kind of hypocrisy here for Republicans focusing on this issue. Well, on that note, Aaron, I understand the Republican response is essentially to paint this as a parody and argue that Trump has legitimate businesses. People use them. Uh, what do you make of their response? Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a credible argument to some extent. The idea that Republicans have focused on is that this money basically flowed through Hunter Biden um, and then went to President Biden. Again, there's no evidence of that, but that there was some kind of a cover up or this was surreptitiously done to enrich uh, President Biden himself. Again, there's no evidence of that, though. And, and again, if the um, if your point is that taking foreign money is going to compromise you in some way, we do have evidence of Trump and his family doing overseas business after leaving the White House. Uh, $2 billion uh, investment from the Saudi public investment firm for Jared Kushner, his son-in-law. And then we have this money that actually went to Trump's businesses from these foreign entities that could, you know, plausibly be read to have, uh, you know, currying influence with the incumbent president. And so I would expect that Democrats, as Republicans move forward with these impeachment proceedings, are going to be pointing to this number over and over again and basically arguing that Republicans are not interested in what they're talking about with impeachment. Aaron, there's certainly no shortage of troubles that are following the former president from the indictments, the criminal cases, the constitutional issues. So where do the conclusions in this report rank in significance when compared to some of these other issues? Well, I think as far as the 2024 campaign, it's probably on the lower side. Um, you know, the idea that President Biden could be impeached is a significant question. I think it would be surprising if Republicans ultimately didn't go there now that they've gone as far as launching a formal impeachment inquiry. Um, but we have also seen in the past that merely impeaching a president doesn't necessarily have a huge political impact. When Democrats were doing this with President Trump uh, a couple of years ago, there was a real fear in Democratic circles that it would actually help Trump by looking like it was too political. And so I think when you're looking at things that could actually impact the campaign, we're looking at what the Supreme Court is doing right now when it comes to Trump's ballot access, when it comes to his uh, argument for immunity. And of course, we're talking about the four criminal trials that Trump is facing, uh, which we don't know precisely when a lot of them will begin, but they could take place at some point during the 2024 campaign. Now, when it comes to some of those appeals to the Supreme Court concerning whether or not Trump will be on the ballot in certain states, what, what are some of the scenarios that could play out with those appeals? Well, there's a lot of different scenarios. The, the conventional wisdom is that a Supreme Court that leans conservative, that Trump nominated three of the nine justices on, would not take him off the ballot. Basically, that it would overturn these uh, rulings in both Colorado and Maine, the two states that have taken Trump off the ballot for allegedly engaging in insurrection. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways they could arrive at that, though. They could uh, make a procedural argument, basically saying that the president is not subject to this qualification in the 14th Amendment. They could say that Congress needs to lay out some kind of a procedure to to execute this uh, this portion of the 14th Amendment. Um, they could do a lot of things that don't involve actually deciding whether Trump engaged in insurrection. But a few people that I've spoken to also suggest that it's not out of the question that the Supreme Court could rule uh, along with Colorado and Maine that this is something that states can do. 
Um, it, it's not a likely outcome, at least according to everything that we see. But when you take things to the courts, when you take things to people with lifetime appointments, they're not always as predictable as they are with members of Congress who have to watch out for their political futures, for instance. And finally, with all of these factors, including the possibility of an impeachment attempt against President Joe Biden, where does Trump stand overall in the lead up to the 2024 primary season? Uh, in the primaries, we, we have the first uh, contest starting in about uh, uh, 10 days here in Iowa and then the next one a week later in New Hampshire. Uh, it would be a shock if it were anything else other than a, a Donald Trump route in these primaries. So uh, I think the big question doesn't seem to is, hurt his chances at all. <laughs> no, not not in the not in the primary. I think we need to separate those two things. In the primary, all these indictments, all this legal scrutiny, only appears to have rallied the Republican base behind him. In the general election, Trump appears to be doing somewhat better than he was several months ago. But it's not clear that that's attributable to this legal jeopardy. It's, it could be that that's more attributable to President Biden's own uh, struggling image ratings. And so uh, we do have a very close race in the general election. It looks like that race is going to be between President Biden and former President Trump. And then we'll go from there. All right. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter with The Washington Post. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Brett. A prominent Conservative MP is pushing a petition to remove Canada from the United Nations. The petition says UN membership imposes negative consequences on the people of Canada. So far, around 60,000 people have signed it. We requested comment from the Conservative Party of Canada, but have not heard back. So, what does this tell us about the Conservative Party's position on foreign policy? Time to bring in the power panel. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Supriya Duvetti is the director of policy at McGill's Centre for Media, Technology and Democracy. And Melanie Richet, former director of communications for the New Democratic Party and now a senior consultant with Earnscliff Strategies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hi. So, James, I will start with you. How do you interpret a uh, Tory MP backing a cause like this? Well, I mean, there's always a risk when you associate with goofy ideas that then the association will come on to you and your judgment. And I think this is clearly a, a, a ridiculous idea. But the idea of scrutinizing the United Nations, scrutinizing the United Nations Security Council, demanding for its modernization, scrutinizing the United Nations and its Human Rights uh, Commission that has in the past had regimes at the head of it that have had atrocious records of human rights abuses. There's plenty of reasons to be critical of an organization like the UN, but to call for the withdrawal is obviously a silly and a, and a goofy idea without uh, any merit. That's one. The second thing, when I saw the story and my observation was, it's a good thing this isn't happening during an election campaign because one of those 36 precious days of an election campaign would have been wasted talking about this and its and its uh, uh, and its responses rather than talking about the issues that are important. So the Conservative Party would have been burned. So hopefully a lesson has been learned in that regard. And then the third and final thing is that if you if you want to govern Canada and you want the opportunity to govern Canada, you know, I, I looked at that. Ms. Lewis is the is the infrastructure critic for the official opposition. She's not the foreign affairs critic. Michael Chong is the foreign affairs critic. And if you want to govern the country, you know, if you want to be a shadow minister in the official opposition, you have a role and an obligation. And to, 
to cross paths and to speak, you know, the government of Canada, you don't have the Minister of Veterans Affairs making a foreign policy announcement. You don't have the Minister of Agriculture making a fisheries policy announcement. Stay in your lane and demonstrate that you, you're worthy of governing the country by being a responsible and effective opposition. I think Ms. Lewis on multiple fronts missed her moment today. Well, James, you raise a lot of points. I think the last one there is about caucus management, uh, perhaps. I mean, 60,000 people is not really a lot to sign on to a petition like this. Uh, Supriya, what should the Conservative leader do in response to this situation, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it merits a, a response. Um, and for what it's worth, I mean, I agree with a, a bunch of what James had to say there. I think it's also worth noting, though, that this isn't the first time that Miss Lewis has, you know, endorsed openly somewhat bonkers ideas, right? She, she during the conservative leadership race, she cr- criticized uh, Leoc at the time for not prioritizing questions about the World Economic Forum. And prior to that, she had a, put out a statement that was dripping with all sorts of conspiratorial nonsense uh, with respect to the WHO. So, I mean, she does tend to have this sort of pattern, and I think it is um, incumbent on the conservative leader to either, you know say something uh, to clarify uh, or to kick her out um, of his shadow cabinet to make a statement. Because I think the normalization of these kinds of um, conspiracy theories or, you know, um, online nuttery rabbit holes that people tend to get into um, is... All right. I think we may have lost Supriya for a moment there, uh, but I will turn to you, Melanie. Uh, in fairness and in uh, Ms. Lewis's defense, uh, MPs are free to advocate for whatever cause they would like and free to promote whatever petitions they would like. So are the risks uh, really that great for the Conservative Party to not speak out and not take any action? Oh, absolutely. I think what we saw in 2023 from the Conservatives is an ability to be um, laser-focused on a, a core set of that resonate with the majority of Canadians, whereas what um, Ms. Lewis is putting forward is actually going to alienate the majority of Canadians. So the more the Conservatives stray from that message of affordability, of housing, that the leader and most of the caucus for for the majority of the year, um, the more they do that, I think the riskier it gets for the Conservatives heading into, uh, well, we're in 2024 now, but heading into the next election as well. Um, they need to be, they need to continue to be focused. And every time one of these unreasonable, totally bonkers things gets put forward, um, the more folks at home who are kind of in that reasonable middle um, will see that and say, okay, well, maybe the Conservatives aren't a serious um, alternative to the Liberal government, or the maybe Pyotr isn't a serious contender for Prime Minister. So I think um, while, to your point, MPs can, you know, put forward anything that their constituents tell them is important to them. There is a huge risk the more they stray from that um, main message that they're trying to punch through. I used to always say this to um, my candidates every election, you know, there's 338 of you. If the 338 are saying the exact same thing, Canadians at home will hear and understand what our proposal is. If all of you say 338 different things, then our message will get lost. And I think that's the risk on this one. I see, Supriya, you are back. Uh, turning 
Or speaking of foreign policy, I'm going to segue to a related topic. These calls come as the Canadian Chamber of Commerce is calling on the federal government to get serious about Canada's place in the world. The president of the group is saying that partners in the Indo-Pacific region increasingly view Canada as a quote-unquote well-meaning but unserious player on the international stage. What do you make of that? Is it the Liberals who are the ones who are unserious? Look, I mean, I take uh, Mr. Beatty at his word in terms of the conversations that he's been having with respect to our trading partners. But I mean, there are a number of things in that letter that just a cursory Google search would have proven to be wrong. I mean, he doesn't like to have to uh, approve of the critical mineral strategy that was put forward by the government. But it's demonstrably false to say that one doesn't exist when ministers Wilkin and Champagne put one forward in late 2022. Um, and, you know, it, it's all well and good to talk about f- food security, and I'm by no means um, under or downplaying the aspect of that, but I don't know how we can have a conversation about food security and yet fail to mention the devastating impact climate change has had on that food security. And, you know, when you're lamenting the fact that we weren't invited to um, uh, the Australian, UK, US uh, security p- pact, um, it's worth probably considering um, comments made by former Australian PM Malcolm Turnbull when he said that the reason Canada wasn't invited to that party was because we don't exactly have a, any nuclear subs and we have an aversion to them. Um, and that since we don't you know, operate or manufacture nuclear submarines, then, or nor do we really aspire to build a nuclear feat, then we weren't really part of that um, grouping of, of countries. And that, to me, you know, kind of makes sense. James, the letter also draws attention to the upcoming U.S. presidential election later this year. You don't have to look far for other issues, pressing issues facing the country on the international stage. What do you think is at stake for Canada if we don't have a clearer position carved out on the world stage? Well, I mean, there's a difference between having a clear position on the world stage and then demonstrating it and having Canadians have confidence in it. With regard to the United States, look, the United States is responsible for one in five Canadian jobs. It's the most lucrative and important trading partner in the history of the world and is, is fundamental to Canada's economic security. You know, can't, we're in, in a dynamic where the world is obviously an incredibly uh, dangerous and imbalanced place, you, you know, let alone Ukraine, what's happening uh, with the attacks on Israel, what's happening uh, uh, in, in geopolitics around the world, the rise of economic nationalism, which is often a very short step away from ethnic nationalism, ethnic nationalism, which is often a very short way, short step away from from military conflict and other challenges that the world can get drawn into, as we know historically, we've gone through effectively a generation of massive global geopolitical peace with yes fights uh, that have that Canada has been drawn into, but you know it, it is a precarious and fragile world that is all around us and Canada has clearly shrunken from the world stage when you have Canada for the first time effectively abandoning its tradition of standing by Israel and you have Canada's ambassador to the UN Bob Ray you know as he's casting the vote caught an open mic you know sort of chastising his own government by saying well we'll see how that one flies like Canada is a diminished force in the world we're a diminished voice in the world for a whole bunch of reasons we're praised by Hamas uh, you know just before Christmas uh, in in a in a video note from their leader I mean so so Canada's foreign policy has been adrift for quite some time and it's particularly acute under Prime Minister Trudeau. Melanie, do you agree with that take? Is Canada's foreign policy adrift and is the country an unserious player in an increasingly dangerous world? 
Well, I think one of the things that I found from that letter um, when he said that the government was reactive and unfocused, I really clung on that. And it seems like that could be said about the Liberal government on on many issues, but particularly this one. Um, There are things mentioned in the letter that, um, to be fair to the government, they can't handle, right? You know, the COVID pandemic, the wars um, that James just mentioned, what's happening with India. These are not things that the government itself is... Um, controlling. But there is an ability to react to that and to react quickly. I think one of the things that we've seen, um, especially since since the pandemic, is the um, unre- unreliability of our supply chains. And we were exp- we were expecting the government to put forward um, actions on how to resolve that, and we haven't seen that. So I think um, in the next few months, a way to address that in a serious way um, and take up a little bit more space is to figure out what exactly our plan is at least domestically, to um, to uh, deal with supply chain issues in, in the next few years. Supriya, you looked like you wanted to get in on that last point. What's your take on that question? Is this uh, is Canada's reputation taking a hit from this perception on the world stage? I don't know if Canada's hit Canada's reputation is taking um, much of a hit on the world stage as, as much as the world stage is fundamentally shifted and there are a new crop of issues and problems that we have to deal with geopolitically, not least of which are countries that once upon a time would have been considered full democracies uh, can no longer be considered as such. And when we have, you know, large diaspora populations um, living in, in Canada from, you know, other, that have connections, deep connections, including relatives and business ties um, to other countries, I don't think you can solely think about foreign policy without having to consider any sort of domestic um, impact of what those foreign policy decisions are. James, what do you think? How is this perception of Canada impacting the country's role in world affairs? There's a great benefit to Canada to being the only country in the world that's a founder of the UN, a founder of NATO, part of the Five Eyes, part of NAFTA, part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, part of the Canada-Euro Free Trade Agreement, the only country in the world that has binding free trade agreements with half the country's, half the world's economy. And then domestically at home, having this massive multicultural population that is diverse and is, represents the, the great diversity that exists around the world. There's great potential in all of that. But if but if, if Canada is pulled apart internally because of our associations and diaspora politics that get draws Canada out, it makes very it makes it very difficult for a prime minister and a and a and a government to have a Canada first foreign policy that is clear about Canada's interests that isn't beholden to immediate domestic politics and the pressures that diaspora politics has on nominations and leadership races. That's a, right, I want to it's, jump it's in a there, systemic problem I've, that exists in all parties and will endure for some time. I want to give Melanie 15 seconds, uh, last word to you on that subject. Yeah, um, I'll just go back to um, there's always um, room to improve. And I think on this issue, the government needs to step up. I don't think we're under threat per se, but but to other panelists' point, um, uh, it is not what it used to be, and that's not just Canada's right. fault. But I've got to jump in and cut you off there, unfortunately. I want to thank our power panel for being here today, Supriya Duvetti, James Moore, and Melanie Richet. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Brett Forster, and thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.